You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. You might have seen me sort of stumble up here a bit sore. My eldest son and I did the park run yesterday down in Mossman. It's a 5K run. Apparently, they're all around the world. And I woke up this morning just stiff-legged. And my son, he's eight, he got up this morning and said, Dad, my legs are sore. And then I asked him before, are your legs still sore? He's like, no, nah, they're feeling okay at the moment. The difference between 30 years, that will, my legs still very sore. I wasn't able to work that in as a sermon illustration this week, but you just stay tuned, it's coming, okay? The park run and my sore legs, that's coming for another sermon illustration. Um, well, it's good to be here this morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you have dreams for your life? It's kind of a silly question because who doesn't? Who doesn't have plans and hopes and expectations of what could be in life, maybe what should be? Some of them, I think we hide in our hearts. We don't tell anybody the kind of secret aspirations that we have. Others, we will tell anybody. There might be study aspirations, might be a career path we want to go down, family hopes and dreams, might be wishes to travel, might be other kind of life goals that we have. What hopes do you have for your life? You know what, if you live long enough, chances are there's going to be a dissonance between your hopes and dreams and reality. I don't want to shatter your dreams for you, but that is the truth, isn't it? What we hope for are hopes and dreams, and then what happens in life, often they don't match up, do they? You might might, may know this. You might have experienced this big time in your life. You might be in it right now. You may have in the past said, or you might be saying right now, this is not how I would have planned things. You ever said that before? You ever thought that? This is what happened to Paul. The Apostle Paul and the author of the book that we're studying together, we are back into our series, Finding Joy Where You Are. After having a break, we had the wonderful Rick Thorpe here, Bishop of Islington, preaching for us last week, which is such an encouragement. But we've done two weeks so far, now we're back into week three, finding joy where you are, looking at this book of Philippians. And the person who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, this happened to him. His plans for his life really took a big left turn. See, his desire was to preach the gospel in Rome, center of the known world then, preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because all roads lead to Rome and lead out from it. See, Paul's strategy was to go to major urban centres, to towns, and preach the gospel there. And he thought that then the gospel would flow to other sort of more rural, less urban areas. And he's right. And his desire was, man, if we get to Rome, then the gospel can go to all corners of the world. I imagine he dreamed of going there and, and preaching next to the Colosseum and in the Forum and, and really, you know, um, just arguing and discussing with the great intellects of Rome. And Paul did go to Rome, but not how he expected. Not preaching in the large arenas or the market squares, arguing with the great influences, but in chains as a prisoner. That's how he went there. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, sent to Rome, was under house arrest for two years. And rather than being free to preach to the masses, Paul was confined to one small room. Now, can you imagine what might have been going around his head? I mean, just think about it. Lord, 
what are you doing? You ever ask that question? Lord, what are you doing? I thought you were in control. Surely it's better for me to be out there. Come on, God, I'm doing your work here. It must be better for me to be out there. This can't be your will for my life, being combined to a three-by-three cell. And yet, in this passage, Paul says, as Gay read so well for us, I rejoice. He said it twice, I rejoice. And he says maybe the most famous part of Philippians, one of the most famous things he might say in the New Testament, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How did he say that? How could he say that? How did Paul get from there to here? Here's the question for us, I think, this morning. Could we get to a place where we could say that? Could we have joy in the storm? That's the title of this message today in our finding joy where you are. Can we have joy in the storms of life? They're going to come. You might be in it right now. You might be thinking that idea of joy while I'm going through a really difficult time is weird, Dave. Maybe even a little bit morbid. Well, just stay with me. Let's dive into God's word and see what he has to say to us. Paul's experience might have something to do with ours. Can we find joy in Christ even in the hardest times? Because if not, then... Okay. You see, the church in Philippi, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, right? He's, this is the letter he's writing to them. They hear, they send a guy called Epaphroditus to Paul in prison. They hear Paul's in prison and they say, Paul, what's going on? This, is, this can't be the plan. This can't be the grand plan. And Paul is a loving pastor. We saw it two weeks ago. He loves the people of Philippians. He's writing to tell them what's going on. He's writing to help them through this difficult pastoral time for them, like a great pastor does. So let's check out first verse of our passage today, verse 12. Let's have a look on the screen. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that's the people in Philippi, the people he's loved, he planted the church there, he's been longing to see them and he just wants to know how they're going and and he wants to be a pastor and write to them and he says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What? (laughs) I want you guys to know, this is what Paul's saying, that what's happened to me, me being thrown in prison, isn't what you might think. You might think disaster, hurdle to the mission God has me on, but in fact, the opposite is true. Me being in prison has not stopped the work of God. In fact, nothing can chain the word of God or the work of God. We really need to hear that. These people in Philippi back then needed to hear it. We need to hear it. Nothing can stop the advancement of the good news of Jesus. Paul's current circumstances do not diminish what God is doing. Many will try to silence it, but God cannot be chained. I tell you what, I need to hear this. And I don't know about you. If you're a Christian here today, you, maybe you really need to hear this. Because I wonder what you think when you, you kind of look at the state of the church, the current state of the church. In the West, in Australia, in this city, in this area, what do you think? Do you ever think, this is the grand plan? Really, Lord? Like you might look at the census data, more people ticking no religion. You might think about the, the recent marriage debate, many other things going on in the media. You might look at declining church attendance across the board and just think, Lord, what's happening? 
this is it? This is the grand plan? And I tell you what, I reckon the temperature is changing. 15, 20 years ago, people may have thought we were odd, right? And maybe a little bit irrelevant, but happy we were here doing good work in the community. Odd, but, you know, they're the moral ones. And we're kind of glad they're here. But I think things are shifting. And now maybe people are thinking, we're the immoral ones. People thinking it might be better to silence those folks. Don't bring your faith into the public square. That's a pretty loud thing going on at the moment. How is that climate serving God's purposes? It's at these times that the people of faith must exercise their faith. You see, it's at times of crisis. Clearly, the the church is in crisis in the West. It's not time to panic. It's at times of crisis like this when God strips away the old way of doing things. And he humbles us. Why? That we might seek him in prayer and not rely on ourselves. I've said this a lot, but we are an able bunch of people in this room. But we rely on our abilities alone and we are in big trouble. God, strip it away. It hurts, but it's good for us that we might rely on God in prayer. Let me ask, how are we going to reach this area of Mossman? Our vision is proclaiming the hope of Jesus to Mossman and beyond, but how are we going to do it? How are we going to get people to come to the Alpha Course, which is just one of the greatest things I've been a part of? Can't wait for the next one coming up in a few weeks. How is that going to happen? Great food? Oh, man, we've got great people. Matt was right. Great caterers here from our congregation. We've got great food. We've got great atmosphere. We've got great good-looking people on the door. Right? We've got great relationships, good invitations. All those things are right and true and good. But the people of God must pray because we are trying to take spiritual ground. And we must remember this. Please remember this, that these dark times also make the light of the gospel that much brighter. Say that again. These dark times make the gospel of Jesus Christ shine all the brighter. I was flicking through Facebook. I never usually do that. I spend about 10 minutes a week looking at that. Okay, that's a joke. But uh, have you ever looked at like that uh, Safari thing or whatever, how the, your iPhone tells you? It's very rude, your iPhone. It tells you how you know, often you're spending time on social media. It is very confronting. Um, it's not much at all. <clears throat> anyway, but it, it, that's confronting to look at that. But I was recently looking at Facebook and looking at the Mossman Living page. If you don't know it, it's a bunch of people from this area subscribe to that page and they share different views and share different ideas and, and they sell stuff and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I was looking through it recently and I was really struck by this post. This guy, he'd moved here, he hadn't been um, here for long, from the UK, and he was on gardening leave and he had a bit of time to hang around in the area. It's a beautiful area. But he wrote this post which really was quite shocking and quite confronting and it struck me. I'll, re- I'll read some of it. He was really upset of what he saw in his community. I'll read some of it. I wanted to make a post on the me first attitude that has swept Mossman recently. The whiff of self-righteousness from some people is choking me. It's like a biohazard for people who are kind, seeking out any goodness and strangling it. He then goes on to describe a couple of really nasty altercations with some colourful language, and here it is. No, I've edited that out. But he continues, life isn't about you, life is about other people, making the best life for the ones you love, 
building a community people should want to be a part of. So next time you're thinking me first, think about whether you really must be first in every situation. Wow, right? I just read that and I just wanted to bring him to church. I mean that. I wanted to introduce him to the saints at Harborside because we want an alternative community, amen? We want to be different. I'm not condemning the culture, nothing like that. There's great things about our culture. We we love community. We've gathered together. It's a beautiful place. But I tell you what, there is something different about the people of God because we have the hope of Christ. When you take the grace of Jesus Christ, love, mercy, you remove that from the public sphere, can be a pretty unforgiving place. The darker it gets, the brighter the hope of Christ shines. I know I say this a lot, but I say it because I believe in it. We have the opportunity to build that here. Be that here and be that scattered as well in our community. Okay, may we have the courage to live that out. So, God can't be chained. We know that. Paul shows us how in his life. Let's check out the, verse, the next verse, verse 13. As a result, so he said, brother, I want you to know that I'm, I'm here in prison, but it's not what you think. The gospel is advancing. How? As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. In fact, Paul is in chains. Sorry, in fact, because Paul's in chains, the whole palace guard and many, many others know the real reason is there. And because he is there... People are coming to faith that could never be reached in any other way. Now, what was Paul's dream? Be out there next to the Colosseum preaching to the masses. What preacher doesn't dream of that? And yet he's in. But there, there's no way he'd have access to the soldiers, to the palace guard. And what do they do? They spend their time standing next to Caesar. So in the public spheres, preaching to so many people, do you think he'd really have influence there? No. God's got a plan. Sometimes it looks pretty weird. See, Paul's chained to a soldier day and night. There are about, I think, about a dozen of them who sort of rotate out being chained to Paul. They reckon it was with an 18-inch chain, so not very long, chained to another person. Now, most of us think that's taking away our personal freedom. Paul thinks awesome one-to-one evangelism opportunity. (laughs) That's what he's thinking. You can just imagine it, right? There's about a dozen or so guys rotated out, and you can just imagine it, can't you? Hey, Maximus, how you doing? Good to see you again. You know, shift changes. Hey, let, you know, let's get chained up. Okay, how's the wife and kids? Pretty good. Now, where do we, where do we uh, leave off last time? Okay, that's right. The death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means to you. Sit down. Let's keep talking. To you. All right, Maximus, see you next week. They can't get away. Remus, how you doing? Good to see you. How's that whipping arm of yours? Still pretty sore? Let me pray for it. Let's get to the atonement and what it means to you. I mean, this is an opportunity. And these soldiers are going from Paul's cell to other places to standing next to the most powerful man in the world. Influence in that area that they could not have expected, but God is in control. Just imagine these big soldiers. Listen to Paul. They've got nowhere to go. Hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit working in them and their hearts melting. Imagine them repenting in that jail cell with a prisoner. Phenomenal. Taking that news into the household of the emperor. No way they could have infiltrated that place. Would you say the gospel is chained? No way. You see, because Paul is able to glimpse behind reality into the true reality, he knows this. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Big difference. 
He is there by divine appointment. What's he doing there? An accident? He's there by divine appointment. Let me ask you this. Do you have frustrations with your life stage at the moment? You feel like, man, I can't do much. I once hoped I could have done great things for God, but I don't know. Maybe you're thinking, I can't do anything for God where I'm at at the moment. You might be at home with the kids, in a job you dislike, in a team of people at work who you find really difficult. You might travel a lot for your work. You think God is restricted by your situation, by your vocation, your plans? He is not. If, Paul, sorry, if God can use Paul in a prison cell, he can use you where you are. If we believe God has us where we are for a reason, it will change how we think about living out the gospel. We are where we are by divine appointment. Okay, Paul continues to shift his and our perspective in this, verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, this is totally counterintuitive, isn't it? Think about it. How did Paul get in prison for preaching Jesus? How is that getting other people excited to do the same? It's crazy, isn't it? Surely this would discourage people from sharing, but not so. They are encouraged to be bold by his boldness. Many of you would know this, but um, when the Roman Empire was heavily persecuting Christians, this sort of new sect at the sort of the first couple of centuries uh, of the Christian faith, they really wanted to stamp it out. So they persecuted Christians. They, they hurt them, they tortured them, they put them to death. They wanted to stamp it out. But you know what it did? The opposite effect happened. You'd think, why? If you're going to get killed for your faith, surely that would turn people off. No, no, no. People in the Colosseum would see Christians going to their death confidently. You know what they thought? I want to face death like that. How are they facing death with such confidence? And the gospel spread like wildfire. Friends, never underestimate what God can do with a man or woman on fire for God. A young minister uh, was interviewing the very famous John Wesley. He was a famous preacher and evangelist in 18th century England, part of the Great Awakening there. Fantastic time in church history. I'd love you to read about it. It really is encouraging. And this young minister was interviewing him. And he said, John, when, uh, when I preach, not much happens. People kind of fall asleep or, you know, there doesn't seem to be much going on. But when you preach, many come to faith. Communities are transformed. How do you do it? What's the difference? And he very famously said this, I set myself on fire with a passion for God and people come to watch me burn. Never underestimate what God can do with a man or woman on fire for him. It can strengthen and encourage countless other believers. You know, Paul, he's not only facing geographical difficulties being in jail, he's also got to face another tough thing in our passage. Let's have a look at that. Verse 15. Other Christians speaking badly about him. Verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And what's going on here? Well, it's pretty clear that two types of preachers. 
One, they're doing it out of pure motives. They, they want the gospel to be preached. They love Paul. They know why he's there, and it's comforting Paul. And the others, they're preaching Christ. It's not a false gospel. These aren't false teachers. So it's a strange thing to think about. They're preaching the truth about Christ, but doing so with terrible motives. Maybe they think Paul being in prison has polluted the Christian faith. I don't quite know. We don't know what's going on. But one way or another, they're trying to stir up trouble for Paul. Ouch. Not only is Paul dealing with being confined in a jail cell, other preachers are hurting his reputation in how they preach the gospel. How easy would it be? You, t- you tend to be feeling this. How easy would it be just for Paul to say, Lord, I'm done. I mean, I'm in prison for you. Come on. I mean, then now these people are out there destroying my reputation? I, when I was preparing this week, I, I was just, this hit me. This really hit me personally. How would I take that? Now, there's a difference between... Um, when people speak badly against you and there's truth there, you've got to engage that and all that kind of stuff. Or, or if it's false, and you've got to engage that. And that's all true. But I just, how would you take someone really hurting your reputation? The thing is, I, I value my reputation. I probably care too much about what people think of me or what you think of me. And you know what? I like to control the narrative. I don't know about you. It's funny how we often react when people hurl an accusation our way. How do we immediately react? Think about it. When, when someone hurls something at you, maybe it's true, maybe it's false, maybe it's got, often it's got a bit of both, right? What's your immediate reaction? You get defensive? Uh, the boys uh, last week went to uh, the men's conference and Paul Tripp, one of the speakers there, he talks about activating our inner lawyer. We're so good at it. He's like, I've got a whole, um, a whole corporate company working inside of me. He says that, but it's true. He said, he said, I give you permission now to fire your inner lawyer. And I love that because we get defensive. We're so good at it. When, it, when something's hurled our way, we go, no, no, that can't be right. Let me tell you these seven reasons why. How different would our relationships be? Would our marriages be? Instead of just getting defensive or wanting to be right, we want it to be made right. Instead of just kind of, well, you know, I want to put my case across. What if we sought reconciliation instead? I tell you what, when we have um, polite discussions in our marriage, we, uh, we've, we've never had an argument. That's a total joke. But uh, we, uh, when we have arguments, right, everyone does, right? And when we have them, I've got a choice. Just put my case forward and I, I'm going to be right and I'm going to be seen to be right. Or choose the far greater thing, love and reconciliation. What's the bigger picture? Friends of ours who were going through some tough stuff in their marriage saw a counselor. I've never forgotten his really fantastic line he said to them. They were nitpicking at each other as couples can do, um, wanting to be right. And, and, and he said, guys, stop talking. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in love? I've, just, I've never forgotten that. What a powerful statement. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in love? Do you have the bigger picture present in your marriage? See, Paul here has the bigger picture present. He could choose to assert his rights. He's got reason to. But what does he do? Verse 18. You know what? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, that's perspective. It's not about me, Paul says. It's about Jesus. And because his joy is in Jesus and Jesus being preached, he can rejoice. If his joy was in his um, geographical location, he'd be pretty depressed, wouldn't he? 
If his joy was in a great reputation, he wouldn't be in a good place. But because his joy is in Christ, he can step back and say, he's being preached. People are coming to faith and I rejoice. You see, so much of the reason that we, we, we find our lives filled with little joy is because we invested joy in the wrong places and it hasn't paid off and we're exhausted and disappointed as a result. Paul is neither exhausted nor disappointed because his joy is in Christ and he knows that whatever happens, God has his ultimate good in mind. You see, we know this, but Paul's in prison, right? He's, he's awaiting execution or release. It's only two choices. That's what he's facing. But he knows it's going to work out for his good. And here we are to this beautifully famous verse. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This kind of covers most of it, doesn't it? To live, to die. That's pretty much our existence. It's everything. If I live, I rejoice. If I die, I rejoice. Keep going. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul's saying, if he lives, it means he can continue his ministry and serve the Philippian church and others. He says, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. It's weird seeing Paul conflicted, isn't it? I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting or joy in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. What a picture of selfless sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, Paul's in prison. You think it, he's thinking, I know where I'm going. It's better for him to be with Christ if he does die. But he'd actually rather be there to encourage other people. Amazing. The gospel allows us to look at any situation and say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because the truth is, no one is ready to live until they're ready to die. Say that again. No one's ready to live until they're ready to die. I once met a pastor who, you know, you always hear, oh, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? And he came up with this interesting way of saying it. He used to say, I help people die well. As a pastor, he said that, I help people die well. I tried it. It didn't work so well. <laughs> I, I, I felt like I was describing uh, being a hitman or something. It just was, it did not work. I was like, oh, I'm not going to try that again. I help people die well. What, what are, you, are you kind of, oh, anyway, don't worry. But there's a lot of truth to that statement, isn't there? Preparing people to die well, to know their eternal destiny, because the, the end of our life must be secure before the present can be stable. And this is the secret to living confidently as believers. If we live for Christ, to die is gain, but if we live for anything else, to die will be to lose it. Do you see that? We're going to finish up here in a second. Not a second, a couple of minutes. Do you, let me ask you this, come on, do you really believe that to die is to gain, that when you leave this earth, you'll be promoted to glory? Do you believe that? Do you believe you can have joy even in the darkest storms of your life? Do you believe God is good even when life takes a total left turn? When your plans totally change, do you believe he is still good? Do you trust in our sovereign God to work out 
all things for your good and his glory? How can we really have joy no matter what comes our way? I'd love to finish this morning by closing with a story from church history, a wonderful, beautiful story. Some of you may have heard of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Here's a picture of them. Sorry about the quality. It's not amazing. There they are, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They had dreams for their life. Great, bold, exciting dreams. They met when they were really young. Uh, They married young. They started studying at Bible college together. And Jim had grown up listening to traveling missionaries. And he dreamt of telling people about Jesus, those who had never heard of Jesus before. He dreamed of that. So they trained as missionaries. And at the beginning of the 50s, 1950s, they went to South America to share the gospel with the native tribes of Ecuador. They'd heard, but while they were there, they heard about a a tribe there, an unreached people group called the Alcas, very violent. The only contact they had with outsiders ended in murder, very violent, small, stone-age tribe called the Alcas. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot started to pray. They gathered with a few other people who were down there, missionaries, and they prayed, God, do you want us to go there? They started praying, they started asking for doors to open for opportunities, and they started to have a burning passion to share the gospel with the Alka tribe. They prepared for months and they kept praying for opportunities. It's quite an amazing story. You can read all about it in uh, Elizabeth Elliot's book, Through the Gates of Splendor. I strongly recommend a powerful, very challenging, but powerful book. They started working with a great pilot called Nate Saint, young, kind of, sort of maverick Christian pilot who wanted to do great things for God. And he, he had pioneered a way, because I thought, how can we, if, if we sort of approach the, this tribe just cold, they probably will kill us. How can we show the love of Christ in a tangible way? And so Nate, the pilot, pioneered this way of flying where they, they saw the tribe's people come to the river's edge, you know, at certain times of the day. And so he pioneered this way of flying the plane really slowly in a circle and dropping down a bucket and the bucket, he, he was such a good pilot, it would, it would stay there. And they'd put gifts in the bucket. And they'd drop the bucket right down near these people to show them that they were friends. And they wanted to be friends with them. And they did this lots of times. And success happened. They started taking the gifts and they started waving to each other on different flybys. They did this lots of times. One day, a, a member of the Alka tribe put something into the bucket, a gift for them. Breakthrough. God was moving. Their prayers had been answered. They thought, they prayed about it, they thought, let's, let's land. There was a beach that when the, and the tide would go, there was a, a beachhead there by the river. They landed the plane and they met a few people from the tribe. They started talking and it was friendly. They even took one of those people on a, on a trip on the plane. Amazing breakthrough. They prayed and I thought, God is, the, is in this. Let's have faith. We don't exactly know what's going to happen. You can write their diary entries. It's truly amazing. And they thought, let's do this for God. They thought the next step was to create a base camp nearby the tribe. So they did that. They uh, started a camp not far from the tribe, the village where they lived. On the first day, they made friendly contact. Things were looking good. But on the second day, tragedy struck. Many more people from the tribe had arrived on the second day with violent intentions, spears raised. Jim had a gun. But the five men had talked about what they would do if a situation like this had come. And they had decided that 
they wouldn't take a life of another person they were trying to share the gospel with. So Jim lowered the gun. And on that day, and that morning on the beach, all five men lost their lives. These are the men. Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Ed McCulley. There is no doubt that none of these men or families, their families, would have chosen this outcome. There's no way. Who would? There is no way they would have chosen this outcome. It is so easy to say, God, why? (laughs) Why would you take the lives of these young men, none of them in their 30s even? It doesn't make sense. It seems like such a waste. So much potential lost. And the world might look at that and think, yeah, that is true. As Jim was wrestling with the dangers of his mission, he wrote these very now famous words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's really another way of saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you know anything about this, you'll know that this was not the end of the story. Amazingly, Jim, Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, and his young daughter returned to continue the work. Nate Saint, the pilot, his son Steve, continued the work. You can read all about this through amazing, God-awesome events. They made great contact with the tribe. Now many of these people call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. It's hard to believe, but four of the men who took the lives of those five brave men are now followers of Jesus. This is hard to think about. Here is a picture of Steve Saint, Nate Saint, that son, the son of the pilot, with one of the murderers on the beach that day. Not how we might have planned it. A truly amazing tale of tragedy and triumph, hey? I'd I'd like to finish now and pray for us, pray for myself, and pray for us that we might begin to believe that no matter what storm is in our life, no matter what left turn our life might take, we can have the unshakable joy of Christ as the foundation of our lives. I hope you want that. I want that joy in the storm. Let's now pray together. Heavenly Father, we are stirred by this story of these people having an incredible faith in you. It's difficult to look at that and our lives and believe that you're in control. But we do trust you. We ask that you would strengthen our faith. And we know, Lord, it's not about the strength of our faith. It's about who our faith is in. And we put our faith in you. The reason we can have strong faith is because you are an unshakable foundation for our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that we'd be a community of joy, not sort of paced over fake happiness, but true joy. We ask that we'd be a community that might be able to minister to each other when we are in difficult times and speak joy into each other's lives, remind each other of the truth of the gospel that, you know what, to live is Christ. We've got you, Lord, if we live. And if we die, we'll be with you. What could come against us? 
Help us to live this out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.